Hi, I'm Richard, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I'm really grateful to be here. I'm glad that God got me sober and put me in these rooms around you people because you've given me a new way to live, and I'm really grateful for that. Would you take a moment with me so I can get in touch with uh, the God of my understanding? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy eyesight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Again, I'm grateful to be here, and I'm Richard, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I met these guys coming down there, and, and I'm really thankful, because I really wanted to come here. You know, I always wondered what the meeting was like, that sent the type of people that came down to share with us, and to do the great job they did, and now I see it, and it's... It's just AA all over again, you know, and and that's what I've learned over this time, you know. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has been become a way of life for me, you know. Um, when I came here, I came here from California originally, and uh, I've been here about six years now. And when I first came to Columbus, I had about seven months sober. And when I came, I didn't come to Columbus uh, for AA. I didn't come to Columbus. You know, to uh, I came kind of just to do a new thing and to do a new life, and I had been sober for seven or eight months, and uh, I was going to start making money again, and I was going to do all those fantastic things. But what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is that God has something for your life and plan, and he had something for me. I thought I was coming for a woman and some money, and I came and found a fellowship. So that's kind of how it worked for me, you know, and, uh, and I'm, I'm truly grateful for that today. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you what it's like, what happened, and, and what it's like today, you know. And, uh, you know, it started out for me, I guess I can say, well, it started out when I was about, as far as I can go back when I was about six years old. And my mother and them told me that my godfather <clears throat> gave me some Pat's Blue Ribbon beer. Thank you. And uh, I don't know if that started it. I don't know what happened. But for some reason, out of my family, you know, I became an alcoholic. And I didn't understand this until years later, you know. I didn't have that understanding at first. Uh, I come from a spiritual family. My mother doesn't drink. My father didn't drink. My brother went to the Vietnam War, got his leg half blown off, and he's still not an alcoholic and addict. But for some reason, Richard had to pick up a drink. And when I picked up a drink, I picked it up for different reasons that other people did, you know. Um... When I picked up my first drink, and really, I guess when I really first got drunk was about at age 13, and uh, I stole some Ripple wine. Now, I don't know what was going on at that time. Now, see, there's some guys here that know about Ripple, okay? I don't know what was going on for me at that time. My mother and father separated when I was three years old, and being a counselor today and things, they tell me, you know, my background, and that might have caused a lot of things, and... You know, at first, when I first came around these rooms, that really meant a lot to me, but today it doesn't. All I know is that I am an alcoholic. All I know is that I can't pick up a drink. All I know is if I pick up a drink today, I will pick up something else, and I will pick up something else, and that's the way it's gone for me. And I will pick it up until it destroys my life and destroys what everybody else has thought and loved about me around me. And today I choose not to do that. And by coming to these rooms is how I choose not to do it. But I picked up that, I stole that bottle of Ripple wine at, at uh, age 13. And, you know, what was going on for me at that time, I was young. Um, and, and I always have to go back because, you know, I still always want to be young. And so I forget that today, now I'm a little older. You know, I'm 48 years old. You know, I got eight grandchildren. And uh, when I was coming up, rap wasn't music. It was your conversation. So I always have to kind of break that down now, you know. Rap was your conversation to the little girls in the room and at the parties or something like that. So we'd wait for a Smokey Robinson record to come on or the Miracles or something like that and, you know, get with somebody and start slow dancing. They cut the lights down low and you're supposed to say a few words in her ear that was supposed to make her love you forever, you know. <laughs> And for me, being the type of kid I was, I really didn't want to ask anybody. You know, I used to watch the older guys and, and you know, and they'd say, yeah, well, this one started liking them and that sort of thing. And I wanted that. I wanted to be a part of that. But I didn't want to ask anybody, well, you know, if I said, you know, well, 
what do you say when you rap to somebody, you know? They'd think I was a square. So I didn't want that. So, but what I did notice was that every time that they, they uh, Tommy Makem and these older guys rapped, what they did was they had a drink, you know? And they had a drink and they could talk to the little girls and, and everything would happen real good for them. So, you know, I figured out my formula. You know, they say that we are very intelligent people, you know? <laughs> and I figured out my formula for this thing and that would get me what I want and what I was looking for at that time. And, you know, and I remember I picked up that bottle of Ripple and I used to have to take my cousins to, to baseball, uh, you know, the younger ones and because we were, uh, my mother had me at a late age. And so we were like between the older cousins and between the younger cousins. And I had a resentment about having to do that to be responsible for them at an early age. So, you know, we're at this baseball game and I'm drunk and I'm getting ready to go to this party that night. And I remember my cousin just laughing and looking at me. And then the people gave us a ride home and I remember them looking over the back seat at me, you know, and they're probably wondering, here's this 13 year old kid blitzed out of his mind, you know. And that's the way it went for me for a while. And what happened was I went to that party, you know, and instead of alcohol doing for me, and what I didn't know it was telling me what it was going to do for me the rest of my life. And instead of it bringing, closer, bringing me closer to those little girls, it took me farther away. And that's what alcohol did for me all the way through. You know, instead of me being able, for, uh, them being able to see me at a party and saying, yeah, here comes Richard, let's dance with him, it's like, leave him alone. He's a fool. He'll grind you to death. You know, don't say nothing to him because he will clown you in the middle of the party. You know, so usually I'd be back there in the corner talking crazy, hanging out with some of my partners. You know, and alcohol just kept pushing me farther and farther away. I didn't see none of this until I came to, you know, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It took that first step for me to sit down and to see what was some of what was going on. And it took even longer for me to surrender to what was going on. You know, and, and it went that way. And, you know, and, and then after that, I started running with my friends. And I always remember my mother saying, she'd say, you know, I'm a junior. And she'd say, Junior, if you do that, you're going to do something else. Uh, you know, my mother come from Louisiana. She's a country girl. She really don't know what she's talking about. I'm a city boy. I understand this. You know, I understand that I can do this, and maybe you guys couldn't, but I can. You know, and, and, and that's the way it went, and I didn't listen to that. So I went on, and, you know, as life went on and progressed, I'd get drunk at school, and I got these real crazy nicknames, you know. One day we'd be out, and we'd be talking about each other, and the guys called me a nickname, and it always would seem like I would get some crazy nickname, you know. Coming up, I had the name of Junebug. You know, at 13 years old, they called me Moonbeam. I don't know what that was about, you know, but I was pissed off, you know. They were making fun of my eyes, and I knew and I understood that, you know. And so, you know, I always had these resentments going on inside, you know, and I always had to be a little bit better then. But that name became synonymous for a real crazy acting guy. You know, it took on a part... The younger guys wouldn't call me that name. Older guys could, you know, and it took on a handle for me in the neighborhood. You know, don't mess with B. Don't do this here. Or here we'll tear something up. And that's the way it went, you know. And so I started hanging out on the streets, getting drunk, doing those things, crazy at parties. And what happened was eventually, you know, um, in an area in the town that I lived in, they called it Oak Park. And Oak Park was where a lot of the pimps and the, and the hoes hung out on the streets down there, and they had a lot of the clubs in the neighborhood. A friend of mine had moved over in that neighborhood, had gotten married, and, you know, and we were young kids, and we would go over there and sit up at his house, and a lot of the old street people would come over, and they would sit up, and they would teach us game, what we called that at that time was game. And they would teach us about different things. We'd put on Lou Rawls records, and we would sit there, and we'd idolize these guys, and we wanted to be just like this. You know, I always wanted to be like something other than I was. My people were blue-collar people. They grew up. They, I mean, they worked. You know, that's what I had seen. But I did not want to work like they did. You know, I didn't want to do that. I thought that was a sucker. That was main. That was it. You know, and I wasn't going to be like that. So I sat there with my partners and I devised ways to do different things and got in a lot of trouble. 
You know, I remember going to juvenile. It was telling me I went to juvenile at age uh, 15, being drunk one night and turned out a party. You know, my mother had to come up there and see me in change because I had had a, a stick and everything, and they, you know, and see me in this manner. And that's what alcohol was constantly doing in my life. But I started hanging out on those streets, and we would sit out there, and we'd watch the pimps and the hoes come up there. And at that time, when I grew up, the pimps and the hoes, pimps had a very, had a style about them. You know, they dressed, they walked a certain way, they talked a certain way, they carried big money, they had the glamour cars, they had the glamour women, they had everything that I wanted to be a part of and that I thought I needed to be. And we used to sit there and we used to watch them, you know. And I remember one night this one pimp named Al, Al was driving up there in his Cadillac and uh, we were out there and the hoes would, you know, they would mess with us and they'd say, oh yeah, we'd go back and cross our legs and sit up there with our little wine and talk about this hoe chose me and this here and that and that kind of thing. And, and I remember one night this pimp Al, he rolled up to the corner real fast. Al rolled up to the corner, he jumped out of his Cadillac and Al was moving fast to the Momo Club and he had his lights on and we hollered, Al, Al, you left your lights on. Al spun around, threw his hands on his hips, looked at his lights and his lights cut off. Al turned back around and went in the club. I was sold. I was sold. Whatever it was that he had, I wanted to be right there. You know? After a while, my friends told me, they said, well, you know, because my people drove Chevrolets and stuff like that. And my partner said, well, it was a timer on the car, you know, and the lights cut off. But for me, you know, I was sold. I was stuck. This is where I wanted to be. And so the next time, you know, the next time and just before that time, going back a little bit, remember we had been sitting at a James Brown concert and all my partners pulled out a joint. One of them pulled out a joint, you know, and I looked at him and I'm saying, man, you hooked, you know. And at that time when I was growing up, joints were rolled in real yellow paper, so it looked like it lit up the whole auditorium, you know what I mean. And uh, And so... And they looked at me and they said, all oh, beams on one. And everybody ran up to the top, you know, and left me. And I was sitting there. And I had just told him that if he fired that up, he was hooked. And when they left me, I went right up there with them. Because I always wanted to be a part of the crowd. I always wanted to be, didn't want to be other than, you know. So I ran right up there with them, even though I had said that, you know. And after that incident with Al, you know, the next couple of days, I remember my brother had just come back from the Vietnam War and he had brought me back a uh, shark skin gray suit and a shark skin green suit. And I was in my shark skin green and green's my favorite color. And I went up there and the guys told me and uh, the guys said, well, you know, they had something out there on the table and they were getting ready to crack this nose inhaler and to pull the wick out of that and cut it up in pieces. Whenever you gave me a drink, whatever was there to do, I was going to do it. I didn't care what it was. And I remember they saying, man, if we cut this up, if you cut this up and you take it down, you know, something to happen. And I was like the first one to grab it and drunk it down with a beer. Now, when I look back on that, you know, I'm not no scientist or nothing. So, I mean, I could have poisoned myself to death, you know. But to be with the crowd, to be a part of that scene. You know, and to do whatever it takes to stay in there, I was willing to do it. And I remember I drunk that wick down, you know, and I left their house and I had me a rambler at that time. And I'm dating myself again, so I had a rambler and it had what was called vibrosonic sound. They didn't even have <laughs> stereos in there, but, you know, I really, you know, I was really on it and it had some glass pipes. And, you know, I remember jumping out of that, I remember jumping out that rambler to get some gas and, Jumped out that car and I felt right on it. I was like, I'm taking the money out of my pocket and I'm counting my money and I'm flashing and I'm turning around and I'm, and I'm just on it like I've never been on it before. You know? And I pumped the gas in that car and I got in there and I went over to some of my friends and my mouth was nonstop. I talked all night long. But once I didn't fall out drunk, you know, and when I left out of there, my friends said, ooh, we. He is heavy. And I had arrived. I had arrived. What I call that was my first hard drug, and I really found something that I really wanted. 
I could stay up, I could drink, I could talk, I could do all the things that I wanted to do. So the next time when I went over and I, and you know, I don't mean to offend anyone, but drugs is in my story. And the next time I went over, you know, to that house, the next thing they had out was a rig. And it was no problem. Here I was, a kid that had come from just drinking. All the way down here to using drugs. All the stuff that my mother had told me back in the, back there had happened. And I'm 16 years old. And I'm on a roll. I'm 16 years old. And I'm starting into a life that will follow me for the rest of 16 to 15 years. I'm 16 years old and I haven't even come out of school yet. And everything's ending for me already. You know. But for the grace of God, I stand here today and I know that. And I understand that. You know, and it went on like that. At 18 years old... Um, my girlfriend at that time became pregnant, you know, and here it again, it was poor Richard. Because then when I came up at that time, I had to get married. My partners didn't get married, but I come from a family, you had to get married. So here, once again, for me, it was poor Richard, now I got to get married. But what I know, that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Because out of that, out of that marriage, I had four lovely children. That marriage at times kept me coming out of the streets back home. That's all I can look back and say today. I know that because today I have eight lovely grandchildren out of that, out of that family. And today they call me Papa, which is a big difference, you know, because of some choices I made in life. And one of those choices is to come here to these rooms, you know. And it went on like that for me for a period of time. And, uh, you know, my wife and I struggled. You know, I became a machinist apprentice uh, that was during the time of the Vietnam War. And what happened was, you know, I didn't have to go to the war, and I was mighty glad about that. But I struggled through being a machinist, and I had a career. You know, I had a trade. But most of the time, what happened with my trade was, <clears throat> because of the way that I worked, I only worked in the evenings. You know, I never stayed on a job long enough to get seniority. Well, for an alcoholic like I am, that was a rough time to work. You know, because in the evenings, you know, that's when it just got started. Happy hours didn't start until 4 o'clock, you know. And I had to be there for those 50-cent drinks, you know. I had to be there for the crowd that was coming in. You know, so most of the time I'd end up going to work or I'd come to work late or I'd leave work or I'd have somebody call and say, you know, uh, there's an emergency at home, you need to leave right now, and all of that kind of stuff. And my life just went on like that on a constant basis, you know. At During that period of time, um, from my 18 to about 22, you know, I experimented with all types of drugs and things. And one day, I always like to tell this, I said one day I was the original person that, uh, you know, this commercial about this is your ed, this is your brain, and it's frying, and it's on drugs, you know. I remember I was about 22 years old, and I had taken some acid, and I could never figure out this sound that would be going on. <laughs> you know, and I never could figure it out. And one day I sat there, and, I, and uh, I jumped straight up, and I said, my brain is frying, <laughs> you know. And my partners kind of did just what you guys did. They kind of looked at me and laughed, and they said, oh, he's on one. You know, and I left out of that house. But, you know, today when I look back on that again, that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. You see, I know that he was walking me through some things then. You know, because I left out of there, and I didn't mess around anymore. I joined a religious, I got into a religious order, and I stayed in that order for about eight years. And for eight years, I didn't drink. For eight years, I didn't use. For eight years, I didn't curse my wife. For eight years, I was a father to my children. For eight years, I didn't jump on my wife. I didn't do none of those things. You know. For eight years, I came home on time, and I did the things that were necessary to do. You know, and the person that was the head of that movement died at, at one point there, you know. And I kind of lost heart. We lost heart, some of us, but we said we was going to go on and do the things that we were doing. And we had some businesses, and we were going to go on and keep that going. And so what happened was, you know, 
I remember one guy was sitting down there and he was saying, he told me, he said, you know, he said, you know, we're rich, you know, what we can do, we don't have to drink or use, we don't have to pick up anymore. We had that in our head. But he said, you know, they got this thing called near beer that you can drink. Now, you remember I told you that I'm an alcoholic. And you remember that I told you the first time that I picked up a drink, I did not pick up a drink to sit up and to talk with you. I did not pick up a drink to be sociable with you. I picked up a drink to get drunk. I picked up a drink to alter my mood. That was my main goal to do with it. You know, I tried all the other little drinks. I tried drinking, uh, what, scotch. I, start, I tried drinking uh, tangeray. I tried drinking all of those things, and they taste bad to me. Beer, I don't like the taste of beer. But it's what it does. It's what it does to my body. It's what it does to my mind. That's what I like, the effect. So I was willing to drink anything for the effect. Starting from Tangeray, starting from Thunderbird, all the way up to, to Brandy or whatever. Bring it on. If it will get done what I need done. You know, so when he said, well, we can drink near beer, and I'm like, yeah, okay. And I remember drinking the beer. And I'm like, it's beer. Now, I drink went through the whole six-pack. And, and I'm like, I know you, if the taste of beer, I know you have to get drunk. That's what my mind kept telling me. And I wouldn't get high. And I said, man, I know I'm getting high. He said, no, man, you cannot get high off of that. I'm like, I know I can't. So, you know, when I didn't get what I want, I went out and I got something else. I went out and got me a Budweiser. Now, I always say this in this way when I came to. I don't know how long it was, you know, but when I came to, maybe about six or seven months later, I was back doing all the things that I hadn't done for seven years. I was back to shooting drugs. I was back to running around on my wife. I was back to missing work. I was back to doing all of the stuff that I hadn't done for eight years. You know, none of that came through until I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. None of that came true until I looked at that first step and seen that every time I picked up a drink, my life fell apart. Every time I picked up a drink, I picked up something else. You know, when I first came around this fellowship, I couldn't admit that I was an alcoholic. I did not, that was the last thing I wanted to be. I could admit that I was an addict. I had no problem with that. If you stick a spike in your arm, if you do those things, you're an addict. I had no problem with that. To me, an addict was hip, slick, and cool. You know, I thought an alcoholic, all he did was fall down and get drunk, and that was it. You know, so I didn't want to be an alcoholic. So with that frame of mind, it kept me coming back time and time again. You know, because if I pick up a drink today, and you know, and I have over seven years sober today, but I know if I pick up a drink today, not too far behind, Everything else will follow. I know that today. So that's why I always say that I'm an addict and an alcoholic and I'll let people know. Because I know that if you come here to this program, if you stay around Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what you have going on, it will help you out. It will show you a new way of life. You can stop using. You don't have to pick up today. You know, and that's what I had to get with, you know. And so, you know, I picked up that drink and I went back to doing all of those things and, and life went on and rushed on with me again. And like I told you, I had started working for Southern Pacific at that time, the railroad, and I always wanted to be this hip, slick, cool guy. So here I'm, I am again. Now I'm at the house and I'm trying to sell stuff out of there, cocaine and different stuff, and I'm doing that at the job and they're on to us at the job and they come to me and they say, Mr. Fonderoy, you know, you have some problems. You know, and they send me to this this counselor, and I'm like, okay, I got some problems. But again, you remember, I'm smart. So, you know, I told him, uh, yeah, I got some problems. I got marital problems. And I did. You know, I had a girlfriend, you know, and, and I was running around, and I wouldn't come home, you know, and I had to stay at the club and meet her, you know, and I had to do all of those things. So, yeah, I had some of those problems. You know, where you time off. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay. You know, and it went on like that. And then finally, you know, one day, you know, my wife, 
you know, kind of got tired. You know, and so remember I heard it. I came home one time and she wasn't there. Oh, you know how we get, right? Okay. She wasn't there, but where she had. And so I'm kind of questioning the kids, and my son says something about a little ugly man in a blue car. <laughs> so, you know, so then I come home, and I'm like, well, baby, you know, you don't have to do this. You know, I'm going to come back home, and everything's going to be all right. You know, but knowing that, you know, the girlfriend wasn't ready to let me go, and I wasn't ready to let her go, and we went on some more. So then I came home, I remember again, and my wife wasn't there. Now, you know, the way that my head went was, I owned everything. You know, I had a house, I had two cars, you know, and, and everything was mine, and I possessed that. And so I could do it, but it wasn't okay for her to do it, you know. And I remember coming home that night, and I remember saying, I'm going to kill somebody, you know. And, you know, under the influence of alcohol, I don't know what I might have done. You know, because I've seen, and in the prison where I work at, I've seen guys and I've read their records, and I see the same thing that I was doing, and they're doing time for. And again, God worked it out for me. You know, I remember sitting in, in California, we had privacy fences, and I remember getting a chair and sitting out there and getting me a fifth of Thunderbirds, and sitting it down beside me. Now, it gets to be 108 and 103 there where I live. And I'm sitting in an army coat. And I got my pistol. And I got a bumper jack stuck down in the ground. And I'm waiting. And I'm saying, when they come home, I'm going to kill somebody. You know. And but for the grace of God, because I don't know. See, because before that, I had been in a lot of stuff. You know, I get drunk and, and uh, a guy's waiting outside pulling out a 30-yard six out of his trunk. And my cousin is stopping me at the door telling me not to go outside. And I'm trying to run out here on a man with a 30-odd six. That's what we call insanity. You know, that's a little insane. But that's what alcohol told me I could do. You know, I, I come through at a bar and I got somebody by the neck. And they're coming off the bar. And the bartender's reaching over to grab me. And my wife's over here on this side. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm scared. And my wife's trying to tell me something. I'm running out the front door to meet this guy over on the other side because I know I got to put fear in him because I got fear in me because I don't know what's happening or what's going on. That's where alcohol would take me. So to say that I wouldn't have done it if my wife then would have came home, I don't know. I don't know. But I know under the influence of alcohol, I had done a lot of crazy things that I normally wouldn't do. You know, I remember when I first came to Columbus, I seen a guy, he was on TV, and I seen this guy uh, uh, crying. And they were giving him eight years because he was in a blackout and he had taken off. And his car, he was doing, I think, 120 miles an hour or something. He hit a bump, and his car had went flying and hit the back of another car and exploded and killed three kids. And I understood where he was at, and I understood where the family was at. And here's a man that was probably the next door neighbor to somebody, had kids of his own, was getting ready to go to the penitentiary and do eight years. It's a lot of times that I walked out in the morning and found leaves in my front bumper and stuff that I don't know where they came from. No, but for the grace of God. No. And my life went on like that. And, you know, that, that day, that day, what happened for me was it was the first time I came in touch with any treatment. I knew nothing about treatment. And I, that night, I went back in the house, and I sat there and I drank some more. And my partners came by, and they told me, they, at that time, I had another nickname. They called me Z, because I played dominoes, and I said the word Zooby Doc. So it came by to see if I was in pocket, and I'm saying, I don't have nothing. And they said, well, Z, man, don't come back to the job Monday, man, because it's all around the plant that your papers are made out for you. Now, I told you, I'm the kind of guy that I had to have a job. You know, I'm not the kind of crawl-in-the-window guy or that kind. So when I heard that, it's like, okay, now what can I do to maintain this? You know, I got to have the money to maintain this false front that I have. I got to have money to keep up with this girlfriend that I have. I got to have money to keep up with this wife that I have. I got to have money to be who I am. You know, 
So it's like, what can I do? You know, and the first thing hit my mind, oh, let me call that counselor. And I had his card and I called him. You know, and I told him I was having a real rough night. And his name was Murray. And Murray said, well, look, Rich, call me back, you know, if it gets any worse. And I said, okay, Murray. So I sat down, drank some more, and I had a real elaborate plan, you know. For some reason, Lady Sing the Blues jumped in my head. And what I thought about was this lady sitting in a white robe, and I would be sitting in a white robe reading poetry for about three days, and I'd be okay. You know, I would fix everything. You know, because I told him, I said, man, I need to go someplace for about three days, you know, and just cool out, you know. And he said, okay, well, we have some place, you know, and I knew nothing about detox or nothing like that. So, you know, I'm okay with that. So I said, well, I got to really play this to the hill because that way I'll save my job. I'll save the wife. I'll save the girlfriend. I didn't want to let her go either. You know, and I, and I have all of these things in pocket. So what I did was, you know, I called him back a little later and I said, Murray, you know, man, I'm having a real bad time. Murray said, well, Rich, can you hang on till the morning? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, look, if you can hang on till six o'clock, I got a place for you to go. So I got off the phone and I said, yeah, I got it. You know, I got it. So I called my brother-in-law and I told him, I said, man, you know, I need to go to this place at 6 o'clock in the morning. See, I'm real smart. So I called my brother-in-law because I know they know where my wife's at. And so his sister's going to let her know I got this whole thing figured out, you know. So I called him and we rolled up there in his van and we smoked a joint before we got there. And I went in and I sat down and they gave me the chair and I put my head down and I marked the little things and I looked all down at the floor, you know. And and uh, they even gave me the white robe, you know. <laughs> gave me the robe and went downstairs and they gave this guy to me and he walked around talking to me. And and I was like, I had been up for about three days and I was really wishing that he would shut up. <laughs> he just kept talking. I'm like, okay, man, okay. So then I finally went down and I see this guy, he walks by and he's shaking and stuff. And I'm like, whoa. I'm glad I only got to be here for three days. I'm glad I'm not like him, you know. And so, you know, I went down, and I'm and this guy's still talking. And, and so I just got rude, and I just laid on his couch, caught and turned my back. He pulls up a chair. <laughs> and he's still talking. So finally he got my attention. He said, yeah, he said, man, you know, I really like this place. He said, you know, I've been here for 22 days. <laughs> I turned over, I said, man, what you been here for 22 days for? I don't know if he's seen the look in my eyes or what, but he said, oh, I thought you know. When we sign ourselves in, we sign ourselves in for 30 days. <laughs> so he starts easing the chair back, and I'm jumping up off the couch. I'm talking about, what you mean, 30 days? 30 days? 30 days, the wife will be gone, the girlfriend will be gone, the job will be gone. You know, so he said, well, I'll go get Mrs. I said, yeah, you go get her now. And I'm coming up out of it. She's coming to me. And she's saying these words about you an alcoholic. And I'm like, I don't have no problem like these people. I came here for a rest. All I need is a few days rest. I do not have no problem like this. Well, Murray said, I said, yeah, get Murray on the phone. So I'm on the phone with Murray. And I'm saying, well, what have I done here? Put myself in an insane silent or what? And I'm on the phone with Murray. And then my brother-in-law tries to come through because they were supposed to bring me a joint back now to last for these three days. They stop him, and I'm like, oh, no. I'm getting ready to fight up in here. I know what's getting ready to happen here. And so, you know, Murray gets on the phone. And he said, well, Rich, I thought you were having DTs. And I'm like, oh, man, I really blew this one. I acted it out too good. And so, I know, Murray, I do not have the problem that these people have. You know, so finally they kept talking to me, and then finally they told me I could check myself out. And I called my main enabler, I called my mother, and I checked myself out real quick, you know. And about that time, the wife came back that weekend. She had heard, and you know, and 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 uh, she had heard, and we're riding around talking. And so again that night, my partners came back by and they, to look to see if I had anything. They didn't know. I wasn't going to tell them I had taken myself to this place. But they said, well, Z, you know, man, I'm, I said, I'm going to work Monday. They said, Z, listen, it's already out on the plant. They got your papers made out for you. So me and my wife talked some more, and he talked me into going to treatment. You know, and I called Murray back up, 
and they had a bed for me that Wednesday. And I went in there and I became a star pupil. You know, I was out in 28 days. You know, and I even started a little jogging regimen around there. I came out and see, I stopped smoking when I was about 20 years old. So when you guys taught me about alcohol, that's all I needed. I didn't need nothing else. You taught me not to drink. I don't have to drink. And I didn't drink for a year and a half. I would go to the bars with my partners and sit up there and my ego would be fed because I'd sit up there and I'd drink Perrier and they would say, oh, man, rich. Man, I wish I could do it. Well, you're not richer. I mean, what's wrong with you? You are not me. You can't do this. That's what my head would tell me, you know. You can't do this. You're not me. You know, you weak. I'm strong, you know. You can't do this. I can do this. And I did that for a year and a half, you know. They still fired me from that job. You know, I took the earring out of my ear. I cut off the jerry curl. You know, I walked different. You know, uh, me and my wife still separated. You know, everything still happened. They told me to go to aftercare. I didn't go to any aftercare. They told me to go to meetings. I didn't go to meetings. Because, see, I could not tell my friends that I had a problem. My problem. I couldn't tell anybody. They could say, oh, man, you with them people over there? Oh, no. Not cool, rich. <laughs> you couldn't go out like that. So I didn't go to no meetings. I didn't do what they said. And I just didn't drink for a year and a half. You know? And I got a new job. I became an insurance man. And I made more money than I had ever made before. You know? And they had this insurance test that was real hard. You know? My memory wasn't too good. And it took me six times. I had to pay $75 every time I took this test, you know. And it took me six times to pass this test, and I finally passed it. And I remember what my head said to me that day. I have arrived. And, you know, being a good alcoholic that I am, when I arrive, I must celebrate, you know. And my boss said, I'm taking you out to dinner, Rich, because he was happy. All of this was going to stick on the books. Everything was going to work out. You know, and I'm happy and I'm going to show them. I've made, I'm making more money than they ever thought I could make. They kicked me off of that plant. I'm going to show all of them. And so he said, Rich, I know you don't drink, but I'm going to have me a little something. I said, yeah, I'll have a glass of wine. I haven't drank for a year and a half. You know, I got a new job. I'm making more money. I have my own apartment now. I'm, I'm. I've done everything I need to do. I'll have a glass of wine. And I remember looking at that glass of wine. It's chilled. The sweat was rolling down it. You know, and I drank that glass of wine. I didn't drink for about two more weeks. When I came through to this time, this was in June. In October, I was sitting in my apartment complex. All the lights were on. My wife was on one side of the car. My landlord was on the other side of the car. People were standing out in their robes on the on the banister, and I was sitting in the car with a bottle of MD-20 between my legs with a straw. And I had started doing all of the stuff that I had done over again. Why a straw? Because they told me if I drank it through a straw, I'd get drunker. And if you tell me something like that, I'm going to do it. And here I am again. This time I got a cast on my leg. Because one night my friends come over and they say, well, you know, uh, we want to play some baseball. And I haven't played no baseball since I'm 15 years old. And I think in my time, Yogi Berra. So I think I can go out there and be Yogi Berra or somebody. I forget to lift up my leg. I'm drunk. I forget to lift up my leg. And here's a guy sliding in and he breaks my ankle. You know, because alcohol told me I could get back out there and be a superstar. But that's what was happening for me. And this time I took a geographical cure and I took off to San Francisco in the Bay Area and I started making even more money, you know. And this time I got with the high rollers. And this time I started spending more money and I hit harder drugs and I learned freebasing and I went off into that. And I would clean up every once in a while and I would go to the church and I would clean up for a few months and I would go back out there and I would do different things. But I never wanted to come back to these rooms. I didn't want to come back here. I didn't want to say that I was defeated. And until I said I was defeated, I could not be successful. You know, and 10 years later, you know, one morning, 
this high class guy that used to sit up and drink Remy Martin and cross his legs and talk real good stuff in the Frisco area and do all of that and go to these high class parties and have these high class champagne parties and make forty and fifty thousand dollars a year was in a hotel. I'm in a hotel and I'm in a hotel with this woman and she's dancing around in these white shoes talking about, look at my new shoes. <laughs> you know, look at my new shoes. And I got a bottle of red port wine. And I look at her shoes and they're my uncle's shoes. <laughs> and I'm looking at her shoes and I'm like, okay. And she's dancing around. And then she tells me, she said, baby, did you smoke up all that dough? And I'm like, yeah. And she tells me, you out of control. Now here's this high class guy who done snuck off with the craziest person in the neighborhood. You know, and I'm sitting in there and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at me and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at me and she's telling me I'm out of control. And we tie up our little bags. And we walk on down the street and she's limping. And this is the sight that's seen on Sunday morning. And I go to a telephone booth and I call a friend of mine that I had met in the church and I tell him, man, I need help real bad. Can you get me someplace? You know, and when I get home, my uncle told me, my uncle was like, Junior. What kind of girl you have over here? I, don't know, I didn't have nobody over here. I didn't have nobody over here. And he's like, you see them shoes? <laughs> and I'm like, what shoes? What shoes? And finally I looked at the shoes and, you know, the soles were gone. But this is high class rich. That's where alcohol and drugs had taken me. You know, that's where they're taking me. You know, me and my children kind of laugh today every once in a while. You know, because of my daughter I said, Daddy, you remember when you used to call us and tell us, you know, they got a gun in my head. Send me some money right now. <laughs> they took my shoes. Send me some money right now. I need a hundred dollars this morning. If you don't send it to me, they're going to kill me. You know, a liar, a thief, everything that's possible I had become. You know, and that's what alcohol had done for me all my life. It had introduced me to the worst side of the person that I could be. You know, I tried to get sober for a little while longer. I've stayed sober for about four months, and I was in a recovery center that he took me to. And I relapsed after that. I came out. I started making money again, and I relapsed. And but at during that period, the thing that I had learned was to go to a meeting. I remember we, I went up there, my wife had made me mad one day at a party, at a picnic, and I went to a meeting. And usually I have a good memory for faces. I can't remember names for nothing, but I have a good memory for faces. And I went to this one meeting, and I stood up and said who I was, and then I left, you know. And then I moved back up to Sacramento for one more try after I had relapsed. And I had started making money, and I said, well, I'm going to make up for all the wrong I did for my family, and I'm going to. Uh, support them and do everything and I moved back up to Sacramento and things still went along the same you know and after a while I wasn't making that money and when I made it back to these rooms I had a dollar in my pocket and I had a 76 Ford and I drove to I had enough of gas to get to the meeting and what Alan was saying about your meeting was the same kind of meeting I went to the meeting I went to the place that was my home group my original home group was group one in Sacramento and the sicker you were the better they loved you and I was a sick puppy when I came in there. You know, I was sick and I was tired. And I came in there, you know, and I remember, and that's why for me the readings are so important because the first thing, the only thing that I could hear was rarely have we seen a person fail that has thoroughly followed our path. And that was all I could hang on to. Rarely have we seen a person fail that has thoroughly followed our path. And I searched in my mind after a couple of days there, and I said, have I really tried Alcoholics Anonymous? Because I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. And so I tried it. You know, I remember that day, all I wanted to do was sit in the back and have a hat on my head and sit back there and get sober for three or four days and then leave. You know, because all I wanted to do was what I had usually done, get myself together enough 
and then go back out there and make money. And I said way in the back and I put a cigar in my mouth and I didn't even smoke because I didn't want nobody to realize that there you had to stand up when you came back. You know, for the first 30 days you stand up and say your name and, and your time. I didn't want to do that. That was too humiliating for me, even though I only had a dollar to get there, you know. And uh, so I sat back in the back. And I remember when I went up to do the Lord's Prayer, this guy, after we did the Lord's Prayer, the guy came up to me and said, man, how you doing? I looked at him. I said, man, I'm doing okay. And he said, uh, he said, well, where you been? He said, you still, down in the, you still in the Bay Area? I said, oh, no, you got to be wrong. I'm not from here. I'm in the Bay Area. He said, yeah. I'm like, who is he? And he said, yeah. He said, well, where you at now? And I said, well, I'm, and I shot my mouth off too quick, and I said, I'm up here. And he said, you ain't called me? I'm like, what you mean I ain't called you? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> you know? And he says, uh, he said, well, give me your number. I'm like, oh, man. He said, you got a home group? I'm like, oh, man. He said, well, go up there and sign up. And I'm, you know, sheepish. I went up there and signed up. <laughs> And so he's walking up there with me, so I put my original date on there because I didn't want him to know I relapsed, but I still don't know who he is. And uh, so he said, well, he said, well, man, get in touch with me. I'm like, okay. So I come back to the meeting again the next day, and there he is again, you know. And he said, well, man, how you doing? I'm like, oh, man. Then I hear this other guy over here says, I'm Robert Newhouser, and I'm a child of God. I'm like, oh, man. I'm back here in this place. I didn't come here for that. And the first thing it told me was, what an alcoholic know about God? I've been to church and everything. I an alcoholic know about God. You know, and that was what hit my head. You know, but about three days later, I got honest. After listening to those readings, and that's why those readings are so important to me, because as a newcomer, and I know there's a lot of newcomers here, and hearing those readings gave me hope. It was the first glimpse of hope that I had. All I knew was that maybe I would try. I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous had been around a long time. I knew that people had got sober, and I knew that it had worked for some people. I hadn't given it a try, and I was at my wit's end. I had to do something, you know. And I sat there in those rooms and the smoke clouds, and I remember when I, I came back and I told this guy I wanted him to be my sponsor, and he told me, he said, well, you know, okay. And he said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to pour coffee. Pour coffee and pick up the ashtrays. And, and, you know, it was a predominantly white group, and so, you know, I'm black, and I'm like, oh, you want me to pick up ashtrays? Pour coffee? You know? And so, what I did was, I went on and did what he told me to do. And I started pouring that coffee, and I started enjoying pouring that coffee. And people would say to me, they would say, hey, how you doing? You're looking a little bit better. And this and that. And I started feeling a part of. I started feeling a part of. I got so good I could pour that coffee and, and empty those ashtrays. And people would say, man, that's a good job. And I'd be like, right on. And I'm like, moving. You know, and one day I came in. One day I came in, and a guy beat me to the coffee pot. <laughs> Almost blew my whole thing. I was like, oh, no. And what I did after that was I made it to the meeting even earlier. So I could beat him. Me and him used to have a race for the coffee pot. And I'd be on him because I needed that pot at that time. And I needed those ashtrays. And that was the first bit of service work that I got into. When I came in here today, I seen guys walking around here doing service work. And that's what kept me alive, you know, pouring that coffee and emptying those ashtrays. And then the old timers started reaching out to me. And they started telling me certain things. And when I left there, they told me, they said, Richard, when you go to Ohio, do the same things that you did here. Get you a sponsor. Get you a home group. And do the same things. And that's what I did. And today I celebrate, you know, over seven years sobriety. Today I'm a counselor at a prison. The last thing that I wanted to do, because I thought when everybody comes in that fellowship, they become a counselor. And I did not want to do that. You know, but what was happening for me, I almost went to jail two years sober. You know, because I thought, well, I didn't clean up drinking. I can still run my little game. And when I got with my sponsor, I, you know, I had made some money real wrong and everything. And first thing hit my head was take the money. Use. When you go to jail, 
You can start your time over again. And I called my sponsor. I had learned to tell on my disease. I called my sponsor, and my sponsor said, Richard, I've seen a lot of miracles happen. He said, just hang in there. And that's what I did. You know, and for the grace of God. My God has a sense of humor because he took me right where I was trying to go all the time. You know, and he put me right in a prison and showed me what I was trying to get to all the time. And I really got humble because there's nothing, there is nothing worth me going and sitting in there and doing any time. Me and my partners used to say, well, if I make a million, I'll do three years. I wouldn't do three years for nothing. I wouldn't do three years for nothing. It let me know that when I was sitting on the side of that fence and I was drunk under the influence of alcohol, what could have happened to my life? It let me know all the times I got behind the wheel and I drove that car and I could have killed somebody. What could have happened? I see those guys going through changes about when are they going to get out. Going to the parole board and the parole board talking to them crazy. Getting in there with other inmates and things going crazy. And what my mother used to say, you know, you never know what will happen when you get in there. You never know. You know, a good friend of mine that's here with me tonight, he used to always say, he used to always say, it's my behavior. And see, those steps changed my behavior. When I did that third step, I got on the third, I did the third step with my mother, and I, my mother's a vile Christian, and I showed her the third step in the, in the big book, and I asked her would she pay that prayer for with me. We got on our knees, she said, Junior, that's a good prayer. We got on our knees and we prayed that prayer, and I believe that ever since I prayed that prayer, God has kept me sober. I came to Columbus and I didn't know why, but I found the fellowship. I told my partner when I first got there, I said, I'm not going to but two of them meetings a week, man. I'm not going to all them meetings, so don't bug me, you know. And I got there and I liked the fellowship, and you know, because there you only do 20-minute leads. I'm not listening to nobody for no 45 minutes. You know, and now I'll stay up here an hour, you know. <laughs> you know? So, you know, and, and I told my partner I wasn't going to do that. You know? But God knew what he wanted to do in my life. And when I turned my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him, not the God of my mother, not the God of those people. See, when I was back in that treatment center, I seen one thing in those steps, and it said, God as I understood him. And I had never known that I could understand God for myself. I had to accept your God. I had to accept your God. I had to accept your God. I, I could never understand him for myself. So I'm truly grateful for this program. I'm grateful for this program because today, because of this program, I have a job that I go to every day that I like and I care about. You know, today, because of this program, I go home and I see my grandchildren and they hug me and they love me and they kiss me and they call me Paul Paul. You know, I love this. I love this program because my daughter can come out here and stay with me and try to start her life over again. And I can be a responsible father and a responsible parent, something that I always wanted to be. That's all I wanted to be. That's all I wanted to be. All I wanted to do was the right thing and live a good life. You know, all of those religions and all of those cults told me that I could have friendships in every walk of life. I didn't get it until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I came 3,000 miles away, and all I had to do was come and sit in the rooms and stand up and say who I was, and people put out their hand, and they told me everything I needed to know. You know, today I just bought a home. That's a miracle for an addict like me. At five years sober, they told me I owed $56,000 in taxes. Because I had did so much wrong running and trying to do this. And, try, and I knew it was an impossibility, but I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous, I had seen miracles happen. And if I just stay here and do the next right thing, and I moved into a home. You know, my family can come and stay with me at that home now. I go home and I can sit there with my mother. My aunt was dying and I could sit at her bedside and pray with my aunt. Those are the things that Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. My uncle died and I was able to say some words over his grave. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. You know, it gives me a way of life that I always wanted. It gives me friends that I need. 
It gives me people that are going to tell me the right thing to keep me going and people that are happy to see me make it. That's what this fellowship gives to me. You know, and I'm eternally grateful. And I'm eternally grateful and happy, you know, that Bill Wilson had a vision that God visited him in some kind of way and that Dr. Bob did the work that he did because I am vain enough to feel that one day God knew that there was going to be an alcoholic named Richard Fauntleroy out there was going to need something that he couldn't find anyplace else. This fellowship told me that I don't have to be perfect. All I have to do is do the next right thing. I don't, I'm working towards spiritual perfection. I don't have to be perfect. That's what how it works tells me. See, all the other times I tried to be perfect and I couldn't do that. Today I can fall down. But what does it say? It says, does that mean that we're going to stop because we fall short? No. Does that mean I have to pick up a drink? No. My first step tells me if I pick up a drink, I'm done for. It's all over. I am not willing today to give up the happiness and the joy that I found in the life that I found for a drink. For your pleasure or anybody else's. See, I know I'm a real alcoholic. Two years sober, and I remember sitting in a place eating, and I looked across the table, and I seen a lady buy a little green drink like this. And I happened to look back, and that's how cunning and powerful the disease is. I happened to look back, and the drink was still there, and they were getting up leaving. And I got pissed off. I'm like, why she buy the thing if I ought to go over there and drink it for her? You know, I got pissed off. You know, I went and told at my home group on that, too. You know? And that helped me understand a little bit more. You know, because for me, I don't care how it tastes. If it was going to do the job, that's what I wanted. So, you know, why you spend your money? You know, but, you know, that's what alcohol, today, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a way of life that I truly love and truly care for. When I almost went to jail, me and my sponsor did a fourth step. And when it came out of that fourth step, he said, you should start working. I'm going to suggest that you should start working with uh recovering people more and today I get to work with I started working and I started moving up in that job I started out at Ross Correctional Facility and you know and I see the fruits of that labor you know and I tell them about the program all I had was the book and it's amazing when I look in that book all of the things that I'll go through and I learn about alcoholism but the things that's in the doctor's opinion the things that Bill said that's all they're telling me all over again and I'm amazed and I'm thankful. You know, when I say I'm truly grateful that God put me in these rooms and put me around you people, I mean that because you saved my life. I come down here to Kentucky. I can come into a room of alcoholics and feel at home. I can laugh. I know I can go to New York. I know I can go any place today. And I can put out my hand and I can live there. You know. And I know that God works in my life. You guys taught me how to have faith in that. You know, I used to look at a lady across the table, and I remember she used to look like the most sourest person in the room. And I remember my daughter, right after I got sober, tried to commit suicide. And when I shared that in my home group, that lady came up to me, and she put out a hand. She hugged me, and she said, Richard, she said, my son tried to do it, and this, and so on, and told me what to do. And that's how it works in these rooms. If this is your first time here, if you've only been here for a short time, all I can tell you is that you're in the right place. If you've never had a shot before, you have a shot now at life. Stay where you're at. Stay in the program Alcoholics Anonymous. It will give you more rewards than you ever thought that you could have or that you could imagine. That's what it's done in my life today. And I'm truly grateful to God for putting me in these rooms and put me around you people. I thank you for inviting me out here. I'm grateful that God has put these men and the men that come down to Ross in my life. I'm grateful for this group because I really see what AA does. These guys come down there. I drove three miles, I mean three hours a day. And they do that every month. And some of the guys, the guys that I really love and care about in those prisons have been able to get sponsors here, have been able to fill a new life. 
and that's because of this group that you guys have here. I'm really grateful for you guys, and I really thank you for the job and for the people and for what you're doing in the AA way up here because it really shows and it's really done made a magnificent difference with what we do down there at Ross Correction. Thank you, and God bless you.